Welcome to the Shift Gold Friday Gold Wrap, your overview of news impacting the precious metals markets. It's Friday, October 27th. I'm your host, Mike Meharry. Thanks for tuning in. You know, when you look at economic data, without a proper economic framework, you're basically navigating by the stars on a cloudy night. This is exactly what the Federal Reserve, a lot of mainstream economists, and most financial network talking heads are doing. They have all this data, they have all these numbers, but they cram it into a jacked-up economic framework. As a result, they end up with jacked-up solutions to economic problems. I'll give you an example. We have all of this CPI data, right? Now, We know the data doesn't accurately measure price inflation. I'm going to get into that here in just a minute. But for the sake of argument, let's pretend that it does. Let's pretend that the CPI data gives you just a picture-perfect, accurate view of price inflation. So you've got this data. But if you don't understand what causes price inflation, if you don't have a good economic framework to understand how inflation comes to be in the first place. If you have a faulty conception of inflation conceptually, the data isn't going to lead you to good policy. I mean, yeah, you'll understand that there is price inflation, that it's a thing, but I mean, let's say you think corporate greed causes prices to rise. Well, then you're going to implement some stupid price control policy or some taxation scheme to redistribute wealth concocted by Elizabeth Warren, and then you'll claim you fixed inflation. Or, you know, if you think it's Putin's price hikes, well, I mean, then you're not going to do anything about it. You're just going to, you know, (laughs) pretend like it's transitory. We've seen that show before, right? So, you have to have a good framework. And Keynesian economics, which is the dominant economic theory out there, it's not a good economic framework. It is, uh, there are so many reasons that Keynesian economics falls flat and that the Austrian economic framework is much better, especially in explaining things like inflation and dealing with things like monetary policy, understanding the business cycle. It's not that everything in Keynesian economics is bad, but Generally, it's a faulty framework, especially when it comes to implementing policy, because, you know, Keynesian economics was basically designed to empower government. It, all of the solutions, not all of them, but many of the solutions in the Keynesian framework involve the government getting involved, government stimulus, government spending, government regulation. All of this is is part of this framework. And that's why you get big government solutions from the vast majority of mainstream academics and, and economic pundits. But, you know, not having a good framework. And, and when I'm talking about a good framework, it's not just the economic theory. It's also having some sense of history, right? I mean, history doesn't necessarily repeat itself, but it does often rhyme. We should at least have some sense of, of what happened in the past and why it happened. That is totally lacking. And, and then just, geez, it'll be common sense, right? None of that exists. We just have data. And this is a big problem when the Federal Reserve and other central banks claim that they are data dependent, right? Now, 
Here's the first problem. Data is always backward looking, right? I mean, it doesn't tell you what's happening tomorrow. It tells you what happened yesterday. And if your framework is faulty, well, you're going to come up with the wrong reasons that this data came to be yesterday. And you're going to have bad predictions on where the data is taking us because your economic framework is broken. Um, Now, again, you know, Knowing what happened yesterday can certainly be informative, for sure, but it isn't necessarily predictive, especially when you consider how much data gets revised. I mean, just think about Q2 GDP. It was first reported at 2.4%, and now they say it was 2.1%. Now, that's not a huge downward revision, but it is a it is a revision downward, and with like some of the jobs data, we've seen significant revisions downward as time goes on. And of course, nobody ever reports on the downward revisions. That just gets ignored. And, you know, this is one of the reasons that Jim Grant said, quote, one shouldn't be utterly dependent on data. He said this during a recent CNBC interview. I think I mentioned before that Jim Grant is one of my favorite economic analysts. Uh, He is the publisher of Grant's Interest Rate Observer and, uh, I don't know. I like the way he presents things. First off, he has an incredible vocabulary. It's fun to listen to him talk. But he does have a good economic framework. He does have a good sense of economic history, especially when it comes to the bond market. And so he's definitely somebody worth uh, listening to and following. So anyway, to emphasize or reemphasize my key point here, data alone isn't sufficient without a framework or a theory in which to contextualize it. And Grant emphasized common sense as part of that framework. Uh, But of course, that's all absent. The Fed talks about price inflation constantly and never, not once, has it even hinted at the fact that its past actions and those by government actors might have something to do with it. You'll never hear a Fed official or an administration official or somebody in government say, you know, maybe holding interest rates at zero for more than a decade might have contributed something to this price inflation. Or, you know, maybe handing out all of those stimmy checks during the pandemic, maybe that contributed to price. Nobody says that. They don't pay any attention to that at all. It's just as if, like, Inflation just magically happened, you know. Uh, it was it, it didn't exist, and then it was transitory, and then it just happened. It's kind of crazy when you really think about it. So Grant gets the absurdity, and he said this. He said a common sense approach might be helpful. For example, Grant said, you can reason that if you've been repressing interest rates, you being the central banks collectively worldwide, but suppressing them for the better part of 10 years, and if at one point, an extreme point, some $16 trillion of securities were priced to yield less than nothing, the lowest rates in 4,000 years of recorded rate history, In those circumstances, you'd expect that the proverbial beach ball held underwater would pop up again and not just stop at the surface, but rather shoot a little bit up in the air. I love that analogy. 
I mean, just think about it. Interest rates were artificially suppressed. That's holding the beach ball underwater. Now, what happens when you hold a beach ball underwater, right? You let go of it and it goes whoosh and it pops boom out of the water and it makes a big splash and it goes, you know, two or three feet up in the air, depending on how big the beach ball is and how long you hold it under. So, what a great analogy. I mean, it's exactly what we should expect to happen, right? As interest rates rise, we should expect all of the impacts that the low interest rate created, the bubbles, the malinvestments, to pop back to the surface and then explode higher, right, as they return back to the mean. So Grant is absolutely right with this analogy, but you will never, ever hear a Fed official say anything like that. They're just going to prescribe some interest rate cuts and some balance sheet maneuvering to fix the problem as if the problem just materialized out of thin air. It's as if price inflation was completely out of their control. But now, now they're going to use their tools and fix it. So like I said, you have to have some grounding in financial history a solid economic framework, and maybe just a little bit of common sense in order to properly parse out and utilize this data. And the Fed people have none of that. And quite frankly, neither do uh, many of the people in academia and and certainly uh, very few of the talking heads and pundits on the financial news networks. Uh, They lack this as well. So the other problem with this whole data-dependent thing is that the data sucks. I've talked before about the CPI. It understates actual price inflation so much that it's almost useless. I've talked before on the show about how they recreated the formula back in the 1990s. So if you plug today's prices into the 1970s formula, you get a CPI that's almost double what today's formula splits out. I'll link to an article in the show notes page that explains this in depth. I'm not going to go over that whole thing again. Um, I've also talked on the show specifically about how the CPI formula drastically understates the cost of housing. Uh, In fact, I think I talked about that just a few weeks ago here on the show. So this week, I actually ran across another example of how the CPI formula uh, creates output that bears very little resemblance to real life. And this is in the realm of healthcare. Now, if you look at the CPI data, healthcare costs are one of the few categories where we actually see prices supposedly decreasing. For the CPI, healthcare costs are actually split into two separate categories. We have medical care commodities, and this tracks the cost of things like drugs, medical equipment, medical supplies. So, uh, you know, hard stuff that's used in healthcare. Uh, according to the September CPI data, the cost of medical care commodities dropped by 0.3% that month. Now, on the year, costs are up 4.2%, according to the CPI. It's, you know, a modest price increase compared to some of the other categories where we've seen massive increases like food and, and, uh, and shelter. The other um, category is medical care services. And this is organized into three subcategories, professional services, hospital and related services, and health insurance. Now, this category actually makes up a larger component of the total CPI than the healthcare commodities. And according to the September data, healthcare services, uh, those costs rose by 0.3% month on month. But they've actually fallen by 2.6% on the year. 
Now, think about your own life for just a moment. Has your health insurance cost dropped this year? If you go to the doctor tomorrow, do you expect to pay less than you did a year ago? Absolutely not. I mean, my health insurance, I don't have health insurance, I'm in a health share, but my health share contribution increased by 52% this year. So Mike Shedlock over at Mishtalk, um, he summed up some of the weird assumption, uh, assumptions, It's the word I'm trying to say there. He summed up some of the weird assumptions that got into the medical care portion of the CPI. So here's a list. Costs paid by Medicare and Medicaid do not factor into this calculation. Costs paid by your employer do not factor into the calculation. So if your employer is paying a chunk of your health insurance, that's not factored into this CPI calculation at all. Quality of care does not factor into the calculation. So, uh, you know, in in some things they try to adjust for changes in quality. So, uh, you know, if, if the price goes up a little bit, but the quality goes way up, then they kind of factor that together and say, well, the, the price increase isn't really quite as bad. Uh, they don't even factor that into the uh, calculation in healthcare. Now, insurance, this is a biggie. It's imputed. In other words, the numbers are basically made up in the same way they make up the cost of buying a home. And I'm just going to read how the BLS explains how they do uh, insurance. Quote, even though insurance premiums are an important part of consumers' medical spending, yeah, like most of it, the CPI does not directly price health insurance policies. In a direct approach, we would track the movement of insurance premiums holding constant the quality of insurance and use these prices relative to build the health insurance index. However, the CPI has been unable to consistently control for changes in quality, such as policy benefits and risk factors. Price change between health plans of varying quality cannot be compared, and any quality adjustment methods to facilitate price comparison would be difficult and subjective. I mean, God forbid we have anything subjective in this data, right? So as a result, we developed an indirect approach called the retained earnings method. So, you know, this is basically like plugging numbers into an algebra equation when you have the equation wrong. Like you can do the math right and it'll spit out the right number. But if the equation wrong is wrong, the answer is wrong, right? That's what they're doing. They talk about we, we can't we can't figure out these price comparisons because they're subjective. So we're just going to create some other subjective number, uh, which almost certainly is going to underreport the price of health care. And that's the thing about these government numbers, right? They have a vested interest in making things look better than they actually are, right? They're politicians. And I know that the people at the BLS are bureaucrats. They're not really politicians, but they're part of the political class. You know, it's part of their job to make the government look good. It's just baked into the, the, the calculations and the assumptions. So you always have to figure that if there's going to be any type of of subjective analysis, that's not the right word, not subjective analysis, but subjective input, it's always going to fall in favor of government because they want things to look better than they are. Because they don't want you to be mad because ultimately the political class just wants to stay in power. So anyway, so that's insurance. Aging demographics. 
means an increasing number of people are on Medicare and Medicaid and disability. So, remember what I just said up here a minute ago, the costs paid by Medicare and Medicaid do not factor into the calculations. So, you have aging people who are going off of the regular health insurance system. They're going into Medicare and Medicaid or they're on disability. None of this is 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 included in the calculation. So, as a result of demographics alone, there are negative pressures on the CPI Medical Care Services Index. So, I can run through a similar synopsis for medical care commodities, but I'm not going to because you probably heard enough of, of this kind of technical analysis for one show. But think about what this means in real life. The Fed is using these numbers to determine monetary policy. Right? It's using this CPI to decide whether or not they're close or getting closer to the mythical 2% target. Now, it sounds really good to say we're data dependent, right? It sounds so scientific, but the numbers themselves are made up BS. And we're supposed to put our faith in this. Why exactly? Speaking of untrustworthy data, we got the first GDP estimate for the third quarter. Now, if you believe the data, the economy is booming. According to the GDP estimate, the economy grew at an annualized pace of 4.9% in the third quarter. This actually beat expectations, and the expectations were pretty heady to begin with. Now, I love the way the mainstream spins this stuff. Here's Yahoo Finance's take. Quote, the GDP release highlights the resilience of the U.S. consumer despite ongoing concerns of a slowdown. So, this is yet another example of people taking numbers and ignoring any kind of context. I talked about this last week, actually, when I covered the robust retail sales numbers for September. The only reason that consumers are resilient, I'm using air quotes there, is because they still have some room left on their Visa and MasterCard. Remember, I've I've talked about this, I think, in two shows recently. Revolving credit, and this primarily reflects credit card debt, was up over 13% in August. That's the last month that data is available. This isn't a resilient consumer. It's people trying to make ends meet and cope with rapidly rising prices. They've blown through their savings, and now they're buying groceries on credit cards with 20-plus percent interest rates. And I'm, I'm going to take a little side uh, sidebar here. Uh, I got an email, and the guy asked a good question. He said, because when I talk about rising credit card balances, he made the point that there are a lot of people who use credit cards. They'll put basically everything that they buy during the month on their credit card, and then they'll pay it off uh, at, at the end of the billing cycle. So they never carry a balance, but they do have depending on when you look at it, significant balances on their credit card. They just pay them off month after month. And people do that so they can get the points and, and uh, for whatever reason. Some people just like to be able to track their spending that way. And so he was questioning whether or not this is reflected in this credit card data. In other words, I'm making the assumption that people are running up their credit cards because they're buying groceries and stuff. And it's not just me. I mean, I've seen quotes out there in the mainstream talking about how how uh, 
uh, surveys show that people are putting more and more daily expenses on credit cards. So I'm not just making that up. I'm not just assuming that. It's it's a thing. Um, but he said, you can't necessarily assume that because of these people who might be putting big balances on and then paying them off. But that's not reflected in the data that I'm citing. I'm citing balances that are increasing month on month on month on month. So if you're paying it off, yeah, it's going to show up one month, but then it's going to go away the next. So it's not going to accumulate the way we're seeing the credit card debt accumulate when you actually look at the data. In other words, if you had a whole bunch of people that were putting big balances on and then paying them off, as you look at the data over time, you would not see an increase in credit card debt. You, it would basically remain flat, and that's not at all what we're seeing. So hopefully that makes sense. At any rate, I ran across a couple of news items that reveals people aren't just out there being robust consumers. Uh, UPS has cut its revenue estimates, citing a slowdown in business. And this is as we hit the holiday season, of course. So I guess the resilient consumer still can't afford Christmas presents. Oh, and she also can't afford to travel. Low-cost airlines are putting the brakes on route expansion, and they're citing declining travel demand. And we kind of see this in the credit card data, right? Where people are running up revolving credit debt, but they're not buying big ticket items. Non-revolving credit actually decreased in that um, August data. So, what we're seeing is people are spending more and more on credit cards. And again, the surveys show that a lot of it is just for daily expenses, but they're pulling back on big ticket purchases. Uh, apparently, they're also pulling back on Christmas and traveling. So, oh, and uh, by the way, our resilient consumers are also working two or three jobs, which of course is making the jobs data look better. You know, if you're working two part time jobs, the BLS calls that two jobs. And if you get a third job to pay your car payment, well, the BLS is going to claim the economy created a new job. Yay. And everybody will celebrate because it's great because we're adding jobs. Mainstream media pundits can caterwaul about how great the labor market is doing. Again, no context, no understanding of what's going on. Bigger picture. Data is useless without the bigger picture. Again, it's like you're trying to navigate by the stars. The stars are out there somewhere, but it's cloudy. You can't see them. You got to get rid of the clouds with some better context. Anyway, back to the uh, GDP print. You know, I doubt that the formula that they use to calculate uh, gross domestic product is any more accurate than the CPI. Uh, Peter Schiff made a great point saying, uh, quote, the 4.9% growth in Q3 GDP doesn't indicate stronger than expected economic growth, but higher than reported inflation. GDP growth was driven by higher consumer and government spending, but more of that gain resulted from higher prices than the 3.5% allotted by the GDP deflator. Almost certainly true. They always understate inflation. They're supposed to adjust GDP for inflation, but... They don't do a very good job of it. Our friend over at Passant Gardant, and uh, incidentally, that's where I got those uh, stories relating to UPS and the uh, low-cost airlines. But he put it this way, and this he nails it. Quote, real GDP isn't something that the government measures. These numbers are an invention to push a narrative. End quote. Now, might sound cynical, but I can't argue that he's wrong.
Regardless, a lot of people will look at this data. They'll look at the GDP, just like they do the jobs and, and the retail sales, and they'll listen to the mainstream spin, and they'll conclude that the economy is just fine. And people like me and Peter Schiff and Jim Grant, we're just fear-mongering when we say that a crash is looming. I mean, interest rates are at 5%. Nothing's happened. Everything's just dandy. But I keep saying this over and over and over again. I think I say this every show. The economy isn't a microwave. You don't shove in a policy, hit 30 seconds, and then poof, you're done. The economy grinds along slowly. It's more like cooking a turkey on Thanksgiving Day. Takes forever, right? So here's some interesting historical context. Annual GDP growth in 2007 was 4.9%. Now, we know it happened just a year later, right? Going back and looking at the trajectory of things, interest rates peaked in June 2006, right? So, a lot of people think we're at the peak of interest rates now. We might get one more rate increase, which would take it to 5.75, which is actually higher than they took it in uh, 2006. But that's basically where we are, right? So, in June 2006, interest rates peaked, and they held there. All the way until September 2007. That was the first rate cut. That was when people were starting to look at the housing market and go, eh, it might be a little bit of a problem. And so they started cutting rates in September 2007. It was still a year before we actually had the financial crisis. So in other words, while rates were at their peak in 2007, GDP growth was still strong. Now, I'm not saying that things are going to unfold just like they did in 2008, but shouldn't we at least reference the history? It's like Jim Grant said, a little common sense dictates that when you can look back at a time when the situation was very similar, you might want to factor that into your current analysis. But it's almost like 2008 never happened, right? We, we have all of this, this similarity and people just ignore it. And the situation in 2007 was very similar to what's going on today, right? We came out of a long period of artificially low interest rates that blew up a massive bubble. The bubble started to leak air when the Fed tried to normalize interest rates. Eventually, the bubble popped, and then everything went to crap. We had a financial crisis and ultimately the Great Recession. Now, I'll readily admit that the situation today isn't exactly like it was in 2007. It's worse. Rates were lower for longer. Then we had the insane quantitative easing during the uh, COVID years. As a result, today we have more debt. We have more bubbles. You know, it was a housing bubble in 2006. Today it's the everything bubble. The bubbles are much bigger. And interest rates are even higher now than the peak in 2006. But nobody seems to remember the history, much less learn from it. Another t uh, tweet, I don't guess you call it a tweet anymore, another post on X uh, by Peter Schiff yesterday, once again, summed things up brilliantly, quote, if you want to understand how we can be on the cusp of such an enormous economic and financial crisis, yet the mainstream financial media and Wall Street heavyweights be completely oblivious to its onset, just go back and watch the coverage and forecasts during the summer of 2008. 
Peter's absolutely right. You can go back and watch it. In 2008, they were saying everything is fine. Yeah, there's some problems in subprime, but they're contained. Today, it's, yeah, there's some problems in the banking sector, but they're contained. We have a bailout program, after all. It's so eerily similar. And people are still so clueless. They still don't get it. So anyway, you've got to have context. You need to understand financial history. And more importantly than that, you need to have some good bundle, bundle, fundamental economic understanding, some basic economic understanding that you just don't get in the good old Keynesian framework. So before I wrap up the show, I want to touch on the week in gold. The yellow metal seems to have found its resistance right under $2,000 an ounce. But it's interesting to me that we didn't see a big drop in gold yesterday with the GDP data. You know, the narrative should be that the economy is strong, so the Fed is going to have to keep interest rates higher for longer, and that's bad for gold. But gold actually closed up about 5 bucks yesterday, and that was despite some dollar strength on the quote-unquote good economic news, which again is something that's typically uh, a headwind for gold. And then we also saw the yield on the 10-year pushing close to 5% again on Thursday morning. That's another typical headwind for gold. And yet, we knocked on the door of $2,000 early Thursday morning. Uh, the price went as high as $1991.90, and uh, we ended up closing it $1984. So, a little bit off of the highs, but still up uh, about 5 bucks from the day before. Uh, if you look at the uh, kind of bigger picture, gold is up about 7% on the month. And again, that's despite the hotter-than-expected CPI and surging bond yields. I talked a little last week about how gold seems to be breaking out of some trends, and this week uh, reinforces that. I mean, it doesn't prove it, of course, and who knows what will happen today. But um, so far, we're seeing some changes in the trends. A lot of the dynamics we see in play would have tanked gold earlier this year. Now, part of this rally is certainly due to the geopolitical situation with war waging in the Middle East, but, you know, that kind of safe haven buying doesn't usually hold very long once the belligerents settle into the conflict. You can kind of go back and look at uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. There was a big spike in gold with safe haven buying uh, in you know the first week or two, and then it quickly fell off. And the dynamics here again seem to be different now. You know, we'll see how things wrap up today and go into next week. I do think that that $2,000 level is going to be a pretty strong resistance to crack through um, until we actually see something break in the economy or until the Fed goes really dovish uh, and, and starts trying to do open mouth operations uh, to, to kind of uh, indicate that maybe they're going to soften their stance. But, um, that's kind of where we are for the week. So, uh, up healthily, you know, again, I, I mentioned this before, um, just a couple of weeks ago or a few weeks ago, we were talking about, uh, you know, maybe gold testing $1,800 an ounce, and now we're talking about it testing $2,000 an ounce. So, interesting, something to watch for sure. Um, 
In one other bit of gold news, Chinese gold demand showed strong growth through the first nine months of the year, uh, rising 7.3%. Now, of course, China ranks as the world's biggest gold market, and as a result, that demand has a pretty significant impact on the global gold market. The strongest demand, interestingly, was in the investment sector. Demand for gold coins and gold bars surged in the first nine months of the year. It rose 15.98% compared to the same period in 2022. Uh, Chinese investors bought 222.37 tons of physical gold in the form of bars and coins um, between January and September. Meanwhile, the Chinese have been shedding dollar-denominated assets. Chinese investors sold $21.2 billion in U.S. assets in August alone, primarily U.S. Treasury bonds. And that has led to some speculation that maybe the uh, Chinese are jettisoning dollar-denominated assets and buying gold. So I'll link to a couple of articles in the show notes that goes into more details on this. If you are interested, you can check that out there. Now, I would suggest maybe we should be following the Chinese example and stockpiling gold. And if you're thinking along those lines, this is a great time to talk to a Shift Gold Precious Metal Specialist. You can do that by calling 1-888-GOLD-160 or emailing info at shiftgold.com or simply going to the website, shiftgold.com, going to the Getting Started tab. You can chat online with a Precious Metal Specialist. Um, Tell them what your goals are. Let them know what your portfolio looks like, why you think precious metals might fit in, and they'll help you figure it out. Um, Even if you're not sure, give them a call and talk to them about it. um, Because, you know, I'm, I'm not suggesting that you sell everything you have and put it all in gold. But gold is certainly an important part of any portfolio, especially in these crazy times. So talk to them today. And with that, we're going to call it a gold wrap for the week. You can get more details on all of the stories that I've talked about today and more. And, of course, keep up with the latest precious metals news and analysis throughout the week over at shipgold.com slash news. If you haven't done it already, you can subscribe to the show over at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or on the Shipgold YouTube channel and some other places. Links to all of that on the show notes page along with our social media channels. And, of course, you can always... Touch base with me at M Mahari, M-M-A-H-A-R-R-E-Y at shipgold.com. Love hearing from folks. I hope you have a wonderful weekend. Happy Halloween, and I'll talk to y'all next week.